Hi, welcome to 21 Wire Live. Uh, it's great to be with you. This is our inaugural broadcast. Uh, we're streaming out live on YouTube, uh, also Twitter, uh, and on our Facebook page at 21stCenturyWire.com. We've got a very special guest uh, who I'll introduce to you in a minute. Uh, you just saw him just now. But uh, before I do that, I just want to thank our listeners and our readers at 21stCenturyWire.com and the Sunday Wire uh, because because of your support, because of uh, how you chipped into our winter fundraising drive, we've been able to fast track this project. Um, we're very happy that it's come together. There's a lot of people that have helped out, and uh, we appreciate uh, every little bit of help that we've received. Now, we've got a very interesting conversation uh, lined up today. I've got a very special guest uh, for our inaugural episode of 21 Wire Live, and it's only fitting uh, that this person is our guest because we've been uh, following his work for a long time. I'll tell you exactly how long, probably just about a decade, uh, almost 10 years. It's amazing how time flies. Uh, but a lot of you would have known him as Tony Cardellucci, uh, and his blog is called Land Destroyer. And uh, this is a, a really seminal blog site, in my opinion, and uh, some someone whose work we've cited many times. Uh, and I know a lot of people that have done the same. And he's been really at the forefront of the conversation of the, you know, the deep research, the deep dives, especially into things like color revolutions and the Arab Spring and how that was engineered uh, via the West. And uh, so I'm very pleased uh, to introduce to you uh, our guest is Brian Berletic, uh, a.k.a. Tony Cardellucci. And uh, Brian, uh, I just want to say it's great to have you for our uh, inaugural episode and uh you know i appreciate you joining us you're you're joining us from halfway across the world you're in bangkok thailand you're in southeast asia that's where you're based but um again uh thanks and you know congratulations that you're uh in a way out uh in the world now uh as as yourself um i know you've been writing under a pen name for a long time um that that's a story in itself um, so, I mean, we can get into that. We're going to discuss some geopolitical issues, certainly areas that you have been deeply involved in for years. Uh, and I think you're going to bring a lot of, uh, you know, great detail and insight into that conversation. But just just to start, you know, uh, introduce yourself. Uh, and this is, by the way, this is a new format for me. Uh, and this is a completely new project. So, um, you know, if there's any uh, technical hitches, everybody... Uh, uh, we do apologize, but hopefully things will go smoothly. Um, but uh, firstly, uh, Brian, um, I'll give you the floor for a bit. A, introduce yourself. I mean, I've known you for a decade, as I said, as Tony Cardellucci, and you've really been a go-to guy on so many different issues, the Middle East, Syria, um, especially when the Arab Spring was really coming up. You know, firstly, tell us why you, know, why you decided to come out from behind your pen name. Uh, after so long, firstly, uh, and secondly, you know what what really motivated motivated you to start writing in the first place, and and you know your writing has been very impactful, uh, as has your research, and you've really pulled it together, and it, and it was really timely because you you were in that conversation while that was happening, and you educated a lot of people uh, as to what was going on behind the scenes, organizations that they would have not really paid attention to, and you really brought that to life. But, you know, firstly, tell us your story about Tony Cardellucci. How did he come to pass? Okay. First of all, thank you, Patrick, for having me. I really appreciate this. And um, so, yeah, just to get started, I, 
I joined the U.S. Marine Corps right out of high school. I was still 17 when I was at basic training. And, you know, I, I was a very patriotic person, but I was very quickly disillusioned with everything that I saw. I was in the Marine Corps when 9-11 happened. And at first I was tricked like everybody else was. And then, you know, um, because because my, my specialty, my occupation was electro-optical ordnance repair. It was, it was like fixing very advanced weapon systems. I, n I never was really going to ever go to combat, but on a, you know, in terms of principles, as I started to kind of learn what was going on, and, and then as we started gearing up for war with Iraq, I, I, saw, I started to wake up and, and see that we're just making stuff up to go to war with these countries. And... I, I couldn't go along with that. It, it was to the point where I got out of the Marine Corps and then I just left the U.S. because I, I wanted nothing to do. I didn't want it being done in my name. And I've been in Thailand ever since. So that was around 2004. And um, I wasn't really writing at that time, but I was doing a lot of research. And I would say around 20, 2010 is when I started to write because I was paying attention to a lot of things the U.S. was doing around the world. And I, I thought in Thailand, I would be relatively, you know, isolated from that. But it's not true. The U.S. medals everywhere, all around the globe. And I saw them doing it in, in Thailand. And uh, there were these protests. It was kind of like a, like a prototype for the, the Arab Spring that would follow the next year. You had the, the facade of a peaceful protest. You had clandestine militants. And the mystery gunmen that, that came in and were shooting people on both sides. I saw all of that happen right in front of me. And I was trying to tell the world because I saw the BBC, CNN, AFP, Reuters, all of them. I, I know for a fact that they knew what was going on, but they were deliberately lying about it because you could follow them on Twitter and you could see them live tweeting like, I'm hiding behind a tank and the militants are, are shooting grenades, you know, M79 grenades at us. But then when they write the article, when they get back to the office, they don't even mention the militants. And so when I saw the Arab Spring uh, begin to unfold, I recognized it immediately. And, and by the way, why was I writing as Tony Carlucci a pen name was because in Thailand, pe people were dying in the streets. And the, the regime that the U.S. was backing and wanted to get back into power, they had a regular habit of, of, of killing their opponents. And people much bigger than me would, would get machine gunned, you know, in broad daylight. So I, I thought it would be smart to try to lay low and just write this information and put it out there. And hopefully other people would take it and, and run with it. So I, when I saw the Arab Spring begin to unfold, I just felt like um, the 2010 violence here in Thailand was over, but I knew that wasn't the end of it. And I just felt like if I could raise awareness to this whole process, the, the U.S. government regime change machinery, if I could explain that and, and raise awareness, there would be a chance to blunt it in the Middle East and then blunt it before the next round started in Southeast Asia. So that that's pretty much what got me started and what, what keeps me going right now. It's a kind of like self-preservation, basically. I mean, I'm here, my family is here. And um, so that's why I was doing it. And, you know, uh, I had to come out I had to come out from behind my pen name because uh, a lot of people, you know, they've been trying to dox me for, for years. When they couldn't figure out who I was, they just made up 
stories about who I was. And uh, there's this poor guy, Michael Persh, who for six years they said I was. And, um, you know, the BBC, uh, people from Reuters, uh, they, they all went along with this. They all helped perpetuate this lie. And then when I came out, they were trying to cast doubts on, on, on it. And, and it's just, you know, it's what they do. We, we see that's what they do. They, they make up stories and it's a club and they back each other up. So that's why it seems credible because they're all on the same page, even though it's a lie. Um, yeah, so that's, that's why I came out because um, they eventually Facebook and Twitter investigated my accounts. They shut them down. And on the same day, they shut down my, my personal accounts and my real name. So at that, at that time, I knew they already knew who I was. And then when the, the latest round of protests started here in Thailand, and I was exposing US government backing behind them, the US embassy came out at least two times uh, making statements, uh, more or less referring to my blog and that it was disinformation. And, and so I felt like Google, um, Facebook, Twitter, they know who I am. US embassy probably knows who I am. So staying anonymous wasn't really I wasn't really anonymous at that point, so I might as well just come out. Yeah, yeah so that's... And, and also just uh, try to convey to people, I don't think a lot of people outside of Thailand are, are really familiar with the political situation there, but you know, it's very volatile, or at least it has been at periods over the, over the last few years. And, you know, you've, you've seen it, you've been kind of right amongst all that. And, uh, you know, so from a journalist point of view, you mentioned, uh, you know, that, in, in, there is a lawless aspect uh, to, um, you know, retribution against uh, whistleblowers and journalists, maybe in countries uh, that might be a little more extreme than in the United States. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I think it's um, it's it's not as bad as it, it was when I first started. But I, I still think that um, Westerners and maybe like the U.S. Embassy or groups are associated with them, they might perceive that they could get away with a lot more here than they might if I was based in the U.S. or, or in a Western country. And I mean, we see a lot of examples of people that, that do have their lives ruined or they attempt to ruin their lives. So I mean, uh, everyone who decides to do this has to, be, has to be careful and has to take steps to protect themselves. At the time, I thought being anonymous was a good step. Now, I think coming out and having as many people know who I am as possible, I think that uh, becomes a form of protection. So you just have, have to kind of uh, adapt to it. And uh, yeah, I mean, overseas uh, in each country, I mean, even, even, even now you have to be careful here because the, the opposition is becoming increasingly desperate. And I think the U.S. in general is becoming increasingly desperate. Uh, just think about the uh, Huawei executive arrested in Canada. That, that's kind of outrageous. That's something that I, I don't think we used to see very often. And now the U.S. seems to be doing a lot of things like that. So they're very unpredictable because I, I think there's a sense of desperation that their power is slipping away and they, they're, they're not able to get it back. So you have to be careful uh, around unpredictable uh, situations like this. Yeah. Now, now on, the, on the, the subject of regime changes and you know a lot of the things that we're talking about that a lot of people talk about quite matter-of-factly they weren't necessarily talking about it like that 10 years ago uh and so when the arab spring came out um that's when you know i became very tuned into your work and seeing it republished in a lot of different places 
and uh, you know, you you exposed kind of the you know what was going on in Egypt um, and the involvement of Google's kind of young global leaders programs and things like that. You know, that was a level of involvement uh, by by corporate America by Silicon Valley in the Arab Spring. That 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 was really a key to opening up a lot of uh, doors uh, in ter- in terms of understanding what's going on behind how sophisticated that machine, uh, not just the NGOs, not just USAID, and there's a big subject there on its own, but you've got Silicon Valley companies involved in that. Just t- t- tell us about the early days of the Arab Spring and what you know the things that that you were really looking at and how that resonated with what you were seeing happening. In, in the country that you're at right now. Okay, so <clears throat> for for the Arab Spring and and for the you know the U.S. Uh, color revolution machinery, what I did was I I was following the money basically. I saw some websites here in Thailand. There's this one called Prachatai, and you know when you read it, you're just thinking this is so ridiculous. Why why is it so ridiculous? I, I need to know. I can I can lay out. Uh, a very convincing argument with facts to explain why they're wrong, but I want to know why they're wrong. So that's why you start digging into their funding. And it, you know, you know my work was influenced heavily by F. William Engel, who who writes quite a bit about the the NED, and uh, that's how I got started. You know, following these money trails, and I followed the money trail for Prachatai. I looked at the NED. They're backed by all kinds of uh, corporate money. And the board of directors are people drawn from some of the largest corporations in the U.S. So then when you see Google getting involved in, in Egypt, I mean, the NED is basically an extension of these corporations anyway, with just a layer of government in between. And then, you know, these corporations also have their own sort of, you know, soft power mechanisms, you know, the, the like a leadership program, for example. And... When you take that and you combine it to like a sense of history, like how the Roman Empire or the British Empire used to, you know, they used to take youths from lands that they were trying to conquer, bring them back, you know, bring them back to Rome, give them a Roman education and then send them back to their tribes. They come back, you know, all decked out like a Roman. And, uh, you know, a Roman historian once said they come back to their tribe and they tell them this, you know, these are the signs of civilization. And the historian noted that actually those were the chains of their enslavement. It was cultural colonization, which was a key component of just outright colonization and, and empire. And we see with Google and, and, and the NED and many other programs, uh, government and, and private, it's the exact same process because you know human nature hasn't changed. It's just the technology and the terminology that's changed. So for the Arab Spring, they were doing the exact same thing. They have like a almost like a parallel uh, government and institutions will uh, set up side by side with the existing ones in, in places like Egypt or Libya or Syria, like the white helmets. You know, they well, they, they I don't think they were really good, um, like a civil defense uh, organization, but that's what they were set up to look like parallel to the existing one that was actually helping Syrians. And they do this everywhere. And once that parallel system is big enough when it's time for regime change that's the one that slips into place once they're able to knock the other one out so yeah i mean we, that's what i was trying to document and explain to people during the arab spring and that's what i'm trying to 
you know, I'm trying to raise awareness of how dangerous uh, these NGOs and the corporations and interests behind them, how dangerous they are. They're not, they're not a benign presence inside your country. You have to see that it's, it's part of, of empire. It's the first step, you know, like when we look at Libya, that country has been destroyed. And the first step was creating organizations like this. It was a step-by-step process. It didn't happen overnight. It happened over many years. I, I think um, back in the 80s was when they started creating some of these militant groups and uh, networks and the, the human, you know, the human rights groups that, that, that was going on for decades before they finally succeeded. So no, no time for complacency. Yeah, uh, William Engdahl, uh, there was a documentary film called The Revolution Business. You probably, that was by Journeyman Films, and it came out around 2012 or 2013. And it, it brought, Engdahl appeared briefly in that, that documentary film. I was shocked when they aired that because that's a real establishment production company. And they showed how Canvas, um, Op, um, Otpor uh, out of yes. Serbia, they were involved in training some of these young leaders and journalists a- outside of Tunisia and Egypt in in prior to the quote Arab Spring, uh, not a coincidence at all in terms of timing, um, and you know th- that was the revolution business. But you know what you brought up a really important point. You're talking about history, uh, and you know what how the Romans, uh, you know, ingratiated the uh, the the barbarians, uh, and how they sent their their best and their brightest to Rome for an education. So if you think about after you sack a country like uh, like Libya, like Syria, and the opposition is normally outside of the country. They're either refugees or they're students or people involved in uh, in, in Syria. They were scattered across Europe. Um, given uh, absolute, if they were you know against the Assad regime, immediate entry, asylum, or refugee status, and from there, uh, they're very quick to when whenever you hit Iraq or you hit. Uh, Syria or you hit Libya, you want to get that um, expatriate community, that diaspora, that opposition. And that becomes, you know, with, with the Western education and, you know, the, the political indoctrination and give, giving them support as an opposition person against the Assad regime. You're building the fifth column politically outside of the country. Um, I mean, you, you've probably seen quite quite a bit of this as well. In, in advance of another invasion, maybe in 10 years, maybe in, you know, 12 years. In Iraq, there was a gap between Gulf War One and Two, And so, you know, in, in a sense, you could have the same situation in Syria in, in five or 10 years, right? Um, yes. And even here, I tried to raise awareness in, in Southeast Asia as a region. The U.S. has um, a program called YSEALI, Young Southeast uh, Asian leadership initiative. And what this is, is they have a mentor fly in from the US, um, bring, a, you know, bring a Thai person around Thailand so this mentor can re-explain what's going on in Thailand to them from an American perspective. Then that person gets flown over to the US. It's, it's exactly like what the Romans used to do. Fly them to the US. They might have a, an internship. They go to the think tanks that a lot of ordinary people don't even know. That's where U.S. foreign and domestic policy comes from. It comes from corporate funded think tanks that have a team of lawyers create the bill and put it on the desk uh, of people in Congress. And they often sign it without even reading it. And then, and then the media's role is to sell that to the public. 
So these these young people see that process. They're normalized to it. They think, uh, you know, that's that's how the U.S. works. And they feel proud because they're special because they got picked for this program. They got flown to Washington, D.C. They got to rub elbows with all these uh, high up people in Washington. If you go to the Wysili website, they say you might even meet the president. And uh, this is an incentive for a lot of young, insecure people who, who might be driven by ego and not necessarily very, you know, might not have a sense of loyalty to their own country. And uh, they go they go for this. And then when they come back and uh, I'm, I'm working on a project right now where I'm kind of profiling them to see what what they think about different things now that they've been through that program. They're all entirely pro the U.S. At least half of them are pro, you know, the U.S. backed protests here in Thailand right now. Some of them are extremely anti-Chinese. And that's the whole point of this. So these young people are going to work their way into Thai society on different levels. And like you, just like you said, and it, maybe this protest, this round of protests will fail. But maybe the next one, enough of these people will be in certain positions of power or near power or in these parallel uh, NGOs that are kind of like pseudo institutions. Maybe next time there'll they'll be enough of them. So we got to raise awareness of this tactic and, and explain to countries how you need to create stronger institutions to, to make sure you have like a, a one game board and only a certain number of pieces can fit on it. And the U.S. is filling up your own game board. And you need to figure out a way to put pieces of your own on there so that you don't get pushed off your own game board in your in your own house. And uh, so, yeah, that's you know, a lot of my work is based based on on trying to expose that that aspect as well. It's incredibly insidious and it's not necessarily as, you know, as spectacular as a war. So it's hard to get people's interest in that and to keep their interest long enough to actually solve the problem. So, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. It's an ongoing challenge. And it's, it's something we have to keep raising awareness of. It's, it used to be called under the banner of soft power. So when, when, when that term soft power was kind of put, you know, in, into the kind of academic uh, by Joseph Nye, um, you know, former National Security Council advisor to multiple presidents. Um, that, and, and that was really to do with media and propaganda, though. That when people think of soft power, it's about messaging. It's about. Uh, propaganda. So the international mainstream media will definitely, the BBC is a good example about wielding soft power for British and Western interests via media. What you're talking about and what we saw in action in the last 10 years is smart power. This is the kind of upgrade from soft power. This is NGO uh, involvement, uh, civil society, using civil society to populate all of those pieces on the game board that you're talking about. And, uh, and, and, it, and it is really, it's got human rights organizations. Uh, historically, Amnesty International has been involved in that type of an effort, as has Human Rights Watch. If you look at Syria, it's a, a great example of, uh, you know, Human Rights Watch has played a huge role in pushing a lot of propaganda uh, for the, on behalf of the U.S. And, and Western interests. But most people in the West will look at those as charities. Some people donate to them. And they think they've got a direct debit coming out of their bank account supporting amnesty uh, because they believe in this this cause or at least how it's marketed. And, they, and they do do some work, these organizations. They do do some real work, but they also have 
very deep involvement historically, and this is documented with uh, government and intelligence agencies, and uh, and they're populated often by people that you would call uh, political operatives and not necessarily humanitarianists. They're career operatives, and they jump from the State Department to Amnesty to Human Rights Watch, and there's a kind of a revolving door, and government as well. But uh, you know, I don't know how much of that revolving door you've you've seen in your in your studies. I've actually seen it uh, quite a bit, and um, actually here, um, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty are practically a, a component of of the protests, and uh, Thai people are starting to you know really catch on. I think they've actually been upset about this for quite a while now. The the double standards. And, and it's not even something they tried to hide. Uh, there were protests in 2014 where, where Thailand kind of did a counter color revolution. They kind of used some of the same tactics that the US was using in the country and kind of like judo kind of turns the energy back against them. And there was huge violence you know, against these protests. There were shootings, uh, they were using war weapons, um, and Human Rights Watch, Amnesty were silent. If they made a statement, it would be in the most ambiguous terms possible. Like we call on all sides, you know, to refrain from violence, something like that. Whereas, you know, in Syria, they they name names when they're oh, you know, the Assad regime. It's so horrible, and they're committing these crimes. And then they might slip in one sentence at the very end, uh, you know, about the terrorists and, and their abuses and. I mean, to me, I think people on the very lowest levels of these organizations have good intentions. They don't join Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch to be political operatives. I think they really want to be genuine activists and make a difference. But of course, we see at the top, you know, um, Ken Roth from Human Rights Watch. He's not he's not confused about what's going on in the world. He knows exactly what he's doing. And the same can be said about a lot of the people in uh, Amnesty, Amnesty International. Yeah, so yeah, you, you could you could see it in every country. It's it's pretty much one template, which is I which is what I think helped with the Arab Spring when when I saw it here in Thailand, and then I documented the Arab Spring, and when they did it in Ukraine or they did it again in Hong Kong, it's just so easy to figure out because it's the exact same organizations and the same tactics that they just use over and over again. Yeah. So your, your blog is uh, Land Destroyer. Uh, it's been around a long time, and uh, it's been republished by many, many people. And uh, so I, I don't have to ask you where the inspiration of the title came from. You might want to tell us. I think it's a great title, um, but it's very much like your work. It, it's really kind of, you know, punches straight to the point. Uh, on things, but you know, people can go to Land Destroyer and uh, see Brian's work and Tony Cardellucci's work of the last uh, ten years as well. Uh, but uh, but so so just explain to us, you know, what what are what what's the main focus right now? Uh, what has been the focus in the past, and what's your your main focus going forward? Is it changing, or are you staying kind of more or less on the same track? Well, I mean, right right now and uh, day to day, I'm. Um, consumed by the political crisis here in Thailand. We, we have anti-government protests that have kind of died down, but there's, you know, there's no guarantee that they're not gonna start up again. 
Um, it's incredibly dangerous because this is not just happening in Thailand. This, these protests here in Thailand and the leaders themselves openly said this. They're linked to the ones in Hong Kong and they're linked to opposition groups in Taiwan that want independence for Taiwan. And they're linked to groups in the Philippines and Cambodia and Malaysia. So this is the U.S. literally like right in front of the world trying to stitch together another spring, this time an Asian spring. And they're unambiguous about the, in the intentions of this. They're openly anti-Chinese. Every single one of these opposition groups, that's not a coincidence. This is the U.S. trying to create a united front against China through by by. The, the governments in Southeast Asia have no interest in, in fighting with China or making a problem with China. They're the, the biggest, you know, China's the biggest trade partner for every country in this region, basically. And there's a lot of progress coming out of that. There's infrastructure projects. You know, Thailand will have a high-speed rail system before the United States does, because it's under construction right now. And so the governments are, are never gonna go along with joining a U.S.-led anti-Chinese coalition. So what they need to do is re remove these governments or put enough pressure on them to kind of coerce them into this course of action. And so that's that's what we've got. And, and I think a lot of people, and, and myself included, kind of suspect that the Arab Spring was about overthrowing governments that weren't being cooperative with surrounding and, and overthrowing the government of Iran. So... And again, like if you get rid of Iran, then the next step is Russia and China. So, so that that's what that's what that was all about, and that's what this is about. So day to day, I'm I'm really trying to raise awareness and and blunt what the U.S. is doing here in Thailand as much as possible. On a, on a bigger scale, again, it's like to just kind of expose. A, a lot of people all all kind of know that there's things wrong with society. I I try to teach people to follow the money because you can learn so much about any issue by just following the money instead of getting tangled up in ideology or political parties just just follow the money and then if you want to talk about solutions because that's another thing that i've be, before i came out as you know I, I hey i'm tony cartolucci i in my actual life i'm i'm an industrial designer by trade and i did a lot of projects trying to promote localism and uh, self-sufficiency is it was inspired to me by by the king of thailand actually spent his whole life promoting this like localism self-sufficiency and this was in response to the imf and world bank and that the 1990s financial crisis here and he he said to to thai people if you you know if you live within your means and you build your wealth step by step and you don't depend on these you know on giant banks or, or and you you're, you stay out of debt you can really, uh, you, you know, you build your own wealth and you, you can keep that. And you, and you can, when, when things are tough, you have your own base, your own resources to, to use. You don't have to depend on anyone else. So that goes for, you know, an individual, a community, or a country. And so I, I try to promote things along those lines as well. So go, going into the future, I want to keep, you know, cutting through the Western media and the propaganda, but I also want to try to, you know, not just say what's wrong, but, you know, offer some solutions on, on how to fix things also and kind of empower people too. Yeah. And, and when you're talking about uh, Asia, um, this isn't a big distance from where you're at, which is Hong Kong. 
And uh, we saw, you know, if there's any question of, you know, the amount of involvement in the U.S., I mean, it really manifested itself in the Hong Kong uh, protests. And they were literally flying Joshua Wong, uh, feting him at the U.S. Senate in front of Congress. He's getting photo ops with congressmen, senators, Marco Rubio, people like this. And then they, they also flew out activists to, um, you know, film and support the protesters, um, more right-wing type um you know, activists and YouTubers and people like this um, to basically, you know, go against. And I'm not taking a political side per se against, you know, the Chinese Communist Party or, you know, that form of of government. I I think it's probably the most rapacious capitalist country in the world. Uh, Truth be known, China, they just have a state uh, involvement in in a lot of these big corporations of state economy uh, direction and things like that. But that was real. Uh, That was a big, big effort. Uh, to to create a fifth column, a pro-U.S. fifth column in China, basically. And uh, they threw everything at that. Uh, and I think it backfired on them. I don't know what your opinion is on, on how it ended up, but um, I really think they probably, the West lost Hong Kong a lot faster than they would have if they would have taken a different tact. I mean, what's your, what's your view on that? Okay, so for Hong Kong, I was, I was trying to raise the alarm about that since 2014 because the original umbrella revolution, Joshua Wong was already in Washington, D.C. the year after that. They flew him out to Freedom House, which is a subsidiary of the NED. Uh, they flew him out for an award ceremony alongside um, Martin Lee and Benny Tai. And these were three opposition leaders who were involved. And, and, and the U.S. made a, an official statement saying, no, we have nothing to do with them and they're not leaders. And then they had that ceremony to honor them as, as you know, these celebrated leaders of the umbrella revolution. It's just ridiculous. And then um, they were on and off until this most recent and, and you know violent, I would say, round of protests before China finally put it down. I think they put it down for good. And I think you're right. You know, And I don't think they just lost Hong Kong. I think the way that all unfolded and with the violence and with the US denying it for years, literally for years before just openly throwing their support behind it and then it ending kind of should be a, a wake up call to everyone else in, in Asia and around the world that have these, you know, these, I, I call them fake NGOs because how are you a non-governmental organization if your money is coming from a foreign government? This, I don't understand that. But, uh, you know, if you've got these groups in your country and they're, you know, they're active, this is what their end game is. This is what they're trying to do. It's a a huge national security threat. And then when China had that that national security law that they passed, people were trying to to depict that as being, you know, extreme, but not really. If you look at what happened to Libya, Syria, Ukraine, how is that extreme to, to create laws to prevent that from happening in your country? So uh and you know the 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 protests are being funded and organized by the same people. Um you, you were talking about Canvas earlier. That morphed into something called the uh, Oslo Freedom Forum. And the BBC even did a documentary about how the Hong Kong agitators trained there and then flew back to Hong Kong to stir up trouble. And we have Thai protest leaders who went to Oslo Freedom Forum side by side with them. That's why, you know, when, when they come out now and they say, oh, we're linked together. Yes, of course you are. You're funded by the same people you trained together. And that was the whole plan was to 
they actually call it the the milk tea alliance it's like um like like i said they they wish they could get like a nato of southeast asia they can't so all they get is milk tea alliance and so thai people see this and people in other countries in this region see how that unfolded and so now when you say hong kong model the protesters tried to promote that as oh we're going to use the hong kong model to transform thailand into a democratic country but everyone just saw how that how the hong kong model ended so they're like no we we don't want that and maybe if you're using the hong kong model we need to use a beijing model or a variant of it to to put an end to it because we we don't want that in our cities we don't want you know people getting torched or our you know our infrastructure destroyed and our roads constantly blocked over this this is not worth it and and when you know who's behind it that it's the US it's not even the people of Hong Kong behind it it makes it even more unacceptable so yeah i i think i kind of agree with you on that and you know just let's talk a little bit about um some underlying beliefs or values you know uh, everybody who's a journalist or an analyst um you try to be as objective as you can but at the end of the day you know you, you can't escape I don't believe you can escape having some, you know, b- firm beliefs or underlying principles. And if you, let's say, if you support the concept of international law, for instance, this is a big subject of debate. Uh, the liberal internationalists will always look to international law or multilateral institutions or the United Nations, for instance, as the sort of path to finding some resolution to some uh, situation internationally. Whereas the realist the hardcore, you know, the realist, the neoconservative uh, is a, a kind of an extreme realist that, you know, they're basically saying might is right. Uh, these international institutions mean nothing. Um, but out of both of those sides, and we saw both of those sides attacking Syria and attacking Libya and attacking these countries overtly militarily, and uh, they, they don't seem to believe um, in... Uh, or respect the national sovereignty of the country. So in other words, what I'm saying is, is it possible, this is a rhetorical question, of course, uh, you probably agree with me or may, may, or, may or not agree with me. Is it possible to maybe not support a government or a leadership of a country, but still support the country's sovereignty? In other words, that you know that this right to uh, protect or the responsibility to, to protect or to intervene on a human rights uh, platform, uh, as we saw with uh, post-Arab Spring with these countries. Um, it, some journalists, I don't, I don't believe they, they really have, they don't hold that value of the respect for national sovereignty. And the problem is, I mean, American political operatives, they believe in American sovereignty, but they're not so quick to extend that belief to other countries. So, I mean, to speak to that issue, I know, I know you have a certain belief set as well that, that instructs your, uh, your, your journalism and, and the positions you take, but go ahead and talk about that. Okay. Um, well, I, I, I do. I think, uh, the, the, the primary, the primary thing that everyone should be looking at is national sovereignty. It's, it's kind of like person to person, you know, you have to respect another person and their what is their business and what isn't. And you don't, you don't, you know, you don't have any right to get involved in their business unless it somehow directly affects you. 
And the same goes for countries. Uh, I think the, you know, as when we talk about international law, national sovereignty should have primacy. And so like, let's just look at Syria, for example. Um, I don't, you know, I don't live in Syria and how the Syrian government and the people interact, that's none of my business. But what I can say is I support the Syrian government's efforts to defend against a foreign backed, foreign armed proxy invasion of their country. N not only do I support that, but that is the government's responsibility. They would be a terrible government if they didn't try to defend their country against that. And so, you know, I think you don't have to be a big fan of a certain government. You might not even really know anything about it, but you can definitely support their efforts to defend themselves. It's just like you see someone on the street being attacked. I mean, what difference does it make, you know, how he runs his household back at home? He has a right to defend himself and you could even support him to, to defend himself against aggression. And what the U.S. is doing all around the globe is, is naked aggression. They're not even trying to hide it anymore. So, yeah, I mean, and, and like as far as my own personal principles, I mean, I, I try to be a practical person. I try not to be, you know, oh, I'm libertarian. Every solution needs to be, you know, libertarian or anarchy or communist or socialist. I, it's like building a house. You don't try to build a house with just a hammer. You have to have a variety of tools and you have to use them when appropriate. And you can't be stubborn and say, I only use a hammer when you, when you actually need a screwdriver. I think people should try to be, you know, more practical looking at these things. And I, I've noticed because like I said, um, in, in my real life, uh, when, when everything was separated, I would work with people who would 100% disagree with me politically, but we were able to work together because we were doing practical things like designing and building so technological solutions to solve a problem. And so I think, um, you know, on a personal and a local, national and international level, I, I think that that could work. And that kind of is like the, I don't know, that's how I interpret it. when people talk about multipolarism, that's kind of how I interpret it where they're saying each nation has sovereignty to mind your own business, to deal with each other when, when you want to, leave each other alone when you don't. And multipolarism has to work, not because there's some law that people are afraid to violate, but it has, you said might makes right, which in reality, I mean, when we really think about it, it might not be you know right, it might not be moral, but that's how the world works. US is allowed to do the things that it does because of its might, and then that makes it right. And multipolarism will work when that might is distributed, when, when nations have the ability to defend themselves uh, against you know just one country that's overwhelmingly powerful that nobody can stop. That's, you know, that's what I think. That's what I want to try to work towards promoting, actually. Yeah, no, you're getting to the to the nub. Uh, to the to the nub of the issue uh, in the international conversation. I mean, no one's going to deny that you know human nature uh, is that you know more powerful countries will be able to wield influence over weaker parties. That's been proven in trade negotiation models. That's been proven in all all sorts of studies. There's a whole you know girth of academic work that kind of backs that up. But then then there's the other side, which is that you know how do you resolve conflicts? When you have opposing forces uh, fighting over uh, limited resources, for instance, so you know then you have to kind of 
fall hopefully fall back on some kind of agreed framework of uh, conflict uh, resolution. Um, so you know, I, I agree with you, and I also think that the uh, the international community, the United Nations, I think is hugely flawed um, and massively corrupt. By the way, um, deeply, deeply corrupt. However, uh, that's one of the few forums that we do have internationally um, where you, know, you a smaller country can go and air their grievances uh, against a power that they think is intimidating it. Whether they get any results or not is another question. But then the, the, the question is, what's the alternative? No United Nations. Then what do you have? You know, where's the forum? Where's the, the public commons internationally? Then I think it's important to have that. So, you know, th this is obviously a deep dive uh, geopolitical <laughs> conversation, um, but I think it's important. Also, the issue of monarchy, this is interesting too, because um, this is not a one-dimensional issue. Uh, when you look at forms of government, constitutional monarchy, I mean, I'm in the United Kingdom right now. Technically, this is a constitutional monarchy. It's not a democracy or it's a democracy, but it, it's a constitutional monarchy. That's how the system is set. Uh, and the United States is a constitutional republic, and 26 miles across the English Channel is France. That's a, another type of democratic republic uh, as well. You're in a, a, a bit of a constitutional monarchy. Is that Thailand's form of government? I mean, there are some benefits, um, and there's a vast body of work on this subject too, by the way. Um, there are some benefits and some drawbacks, of course, in that form of government. But what are, what are some of the benefits um, just for starters, what you know that that people wouldn't realize, and that could go as deep as how people's relationship is with the state. What what are some of the differences you've noticed? Okay, so I I would say that um, the Thai monarchy is very unique. A lot of Westerners try to compare it to a Western monarchy, but it's it it evolved in an entirely different part of the world under different circumstances, and. This, you know, the monarchy has been around for over 700 years, and the current dynasty is has been around for almost as long as the U.S. has been a country, and it has been a unifying, you know, institution all throughout Thai history. And maybe people don't know this, but Thailand is the only country in Southeast Asia that was never colonized. It was never colonized because they were never able to find a fault line to do their divide and conquer along, and. Also, because uh, you have the monarchy and you don't have, you know, a you know, back then you didn't have, you know, a change of power constantly. They were able to very skillfully manage the, the kingdom's relationship with these giant Western colonialist powers. They were able to balance them off against each other. And that's what kept Thailand sovereign all this time. That's still the reason why Thailand is able to endure all, all this color revolution, all these uh you know, these chances, uh, these tries to try to divide and conquer the country. And that's what the U.S. is right now working on with these these student mobs. They're hoping they can get uh, maybe this generation. We can turn one generation against the other. Maybe that will be the fault line we can use. Um, but, you know, like right now, most most of what happens in Thailand is the government and and technocrats. And, you know, like every country, basically. Like I said, when you follow the money, you will see every country is controlled by, by the biggest special interests in that country. Industry, banks, everything like that. It's, it, you know, I, I think the form of government that a country has is actually very superficial when you think about it. 
Like if you look at the U.S. and they say we're a democracy and, you know, Assad Syria as a dictatorship, you know, that that could be very easily be argued against uh, that the U.S. is is a a democracy when when it's a facade and that when Americans voted for Obama, they expected the wars to end, not extra wars to start. And when they voted for Trump, they expected him, you know, especially with all the things he promised for those wars. It's very obvious that in the U.S. what the people want, they're not getting. So someone would have to explain to me how that's not a dictatorship when, when you actually really look at it. And someone would have to explain to me how the corporations on Wall Street don't run everything. And I think like when you look at a country like Thailand, Thailand, you know, it's not a gigantic country that they're not, you know, it's not like the monarchies in Europe where they were expansionists and imperialists. Thailand's kind of a country that likes to kind of keep everything balanced and keep to itself. And, uh, and it's still kind of like that. And I think the monarchy in the past and the present has played a role in keeping Thai people united, regardless of their religion. Cause there's, you know, it's a Buddhist country, but you have a very significant number of Muslims here as well. And, um, you have different ethnic groups that have, you know, come into the country over, over the centuries. And the one thing that they could all agree on is, Hey, we're Thai. We have this institution. We have this history. We have this history of being sovereign and, and fighting off outsiders trying to exploit us. That's something they could all rally around. So, I mean, that's that's my take on it. And that's why the West is so interested in, in attacking and undermining the Thai monarchy now, because they know that's a that's an obstacle they have to get over before they, they move on to, to telling Thailand what to do. They have to get rid of the, the thing that is stopping them from dividing the country. So that's that's why we see all all of these nasty attacks on monarchy. I think it's funny that uh, it's kind of not funny, but it's funny that a lot of Republicans in America, they'll rail against George Soros. I mean, it, I mean, he's even appearing in political adverts and so forth, you know, because obviously they associate him as a major backer of the Democratic Party. Uh, but they're they have no problem with George Soros's activities in 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 places like Syria or in, in these Arab Spring target countries. Or the or the Balkans in Eastern Europe, they're ripe. Oh, they love open society and the work they're doing to gnaw away at the foundations of uh, you know whatever system political system is there already to try to weaken it and soften it up for you know uh, some sort of other operation. Look at Ukraine, for instance, uh, and all these places. So they so there's a there's a massive hypocrisy there, um, you know, especially on on the U.S. side. When they talk about, I mean, obviously, you're not going to be in line for a fellowship at the Open Society Foundation anytime soon. <laughs> nope. Um, but uh, but but yeah, you 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 see how how this system works. You see how this um, these foundations, non government, supposedly non governmental organizations. I mean, USAID USAID is is really interesting, um, and I'm sure you've run into in your travels as anybody who's traveled around the world runs into people from USAID all the time uh, in the strangest places. And they're often doing the strangest things, I might add. Um, like, what are you doing here? Um, I've, I've, it's happened to me a few times. But, but, but people don't realize exactly what they do. And they're not just providing aid. And, and some people say it's corporate welfare on the U.S. side because they're handing out contracts to selected U.S. companies, but it's more than that. They're also handing out contracts to local 
local businesses or local operators and, and usually of a certain class or a certain cachet, uh, either socially or politically. And so in a way, could, would you say that USAID is buying American influence in, in, in these countries? That's, that's, I think that's one of the, that might be one of their main functions. I, I would say, yeah. I mean, you, you look at China, their, their One Belt, One Road initiative. They're building infrastructure all around the world, like physical infrastructure you can touch. Uh, the, you know, the U.S., when it's funding these, these organizations, they're, they're not actually, they can't build anything. Like, wh when, has, when was the last time the U.S. has built a railroad overseas or something or, or anything significant, a, a significant infrastructure project? So they, it's a substitute and this is what they're, you know, they pump this money in it. And it, but it's just like you say, if you're, if you're just an ordinary person, or even if you're like, um, you know, an upper class person in one of these targeted countries and the U S government or one of their agencies kind of approaches you, you makes you feel special and it, it gets, it gets you in, into their pocket. You end up, uh, part of their collection and, you know, part of the group of people they can always turn to you know, for re reliable support whenever there is something they want to do in, in that country. They do the same thing in academia. They, they support all kinds of programs in universities. Like, like here in Thailand, um, almost all of these pro pro uh, professors that you see backing the, the U.S.-backed protests, they've all been part of programs funded by the U.S. government or scholarships or programs that go travel overseas. And they feel like they're more West, they identify more as a Westerner than as a Thai. And whenever it's time to write something nasty in one of the local newspapers, they pick one of these people to do it. Or they, or they just do it on their own because that's how all of this works. You're, you're influencing them. You're, you're kind of changing, changing them to, to see things your way. And then, and then it becomes a vector of influence that, that U.S., you know, as U.S. influence will flow through into that country. And so, um, yeah, it's, uh, they, they just do it on so many levels. US, USAID, open society, open society. I have not seen open society involved in, in anything that they weren't side by side with the NED with. And the NED is all neocons and, and really right leaning people. So a lot of it that we see in the US where they're like, Oh, George Soros, George Soros. This is theater. This is theater to encourage people to pick, pick a side. If you, if, if the establishment creates two different brands, right? And they could get you to pick at least one of them. You're still holding up the whole thing. You're, you're just holding it up on this side instead of on that side. I think that's what a lot of that is all about because overseas, they, they're hand in hand like this. They, they do everything together. I, I don't know a single NGO here in, in Thailand trying to undermine this country on behalf of the U.S. that isn't getting NED money and open society money. Pretty much, they're they're getting it from both. Now, when you say NEAD, you mean the National Endowment for Democracy, right? This yes, NED. Yes, they're funded by the U.S. State Department directly, uh, and then there's a National Democratic Institute, uh, which subsidiary. is subsidiary. Yes, NDI. Yeah, and so you'll see their fingerprints uh, in places like Belarus. Uh, recently, we had a, a color revolution there. They're trying to oust the uh, longtime. A leader there, whether you support him or not, they're they're very active, and and there's other organizations like the German Marshall Fund, which is yes. kind of a slush fund for this type of activity, 
that was a hangover from the Second World War, but it, it keeps the U.S., it gives them a nice footprint uh, for this. They were very active in the Ukraine as well, uh, and they'll back certain candidates, uh, and they'll, they back the, uh, the, the female opposition candidate in, in Belarus as well drafted articles and did a lot of public relations as well. So it's really about creating consensus. And and also you're right uh, about creating that idea that if an opposition says we have U.S. backing, um, you know, that, that has some cachet amongst certain people uh, in those countries to know that they've got U.S. backing. So if they come into power, they'll have the ear of Washington, and that could be good news for the country economically or something like this. It's kind of a carrot and uh, a few carrots are, are being dangled there in those situations. I mean, uh, we just got a few minutes. We're going to wrap up pretty soon. Um, it's been a fantastic uh, conversation, obviously. Um, so there's there's a couple there's a couple things I want to ask you about that I think are really important right now. One is you touched on the Belt and Road Initiative before. What, what, in your opinion, as and I know you look at you look at things strategically, um, and I know you also you know you share some of your research uh, strategies with your viewers on your YouTube channel and on Patreon as well, and some of these platforms that you interface with your people. And so you have a certain way that you're looking at when you're approaching writing an article, for instance, or doing research. But you're you're I know you're a strategic thinker. You might have picked that up from your previous life. Um, but 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 I think that also makes your work unique uh, because you're not you're not naive at all about the the power that's amassed on the other side and the amount of weapons they have soft power smart power hard power um, and you know that they will bring all of those things to bear uh, when it comes to you know achieving their objectives geopolitically Belt and Road Initiative what do you think the West's strategy really is is it just to disrupt and buy time, or do you think it's it's preparing for? A lot of people are worried. They they see the ratcheting up. China is now public enemy number one uh, in the United States media and in the political sphere now. Do you think? And, and so they're they're thinking: Is this ratcheting up towards a war, uh, or is this just about uh, sabotaging and delaying in order to bring in some kind of other parallel or competitive agenda? What what are your views on this? <clears throat> Um, well, I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the projects themselves, the, the specific projects in each and every country, the U.S. throws everything that it has to, to disrupt them. So that is definitely something that they're doing. They're trying to stop it at every turn. They have a port in, uh, Southeast Pakistan, Baluchistan. So, so there's militant groups there. You could go to the, you can just go to the NED website and just click on regions and you can see all the groups that they're funding. The, the Uyghurs in Xianchang in, in Western China, the U.S. is behind all that. They have their own page on the NED. Separatist groups, they, they call it East Turkestan. Uh, yeah. Tur- yeah, that's, you know, that's a term that only the separatists use. It's not a real country. It's the one they want to turn, they want to peel Xianchang off from China and turn it into. So, so that's that. And that, and the, a big component of the One Belt, One Road initiative goes through there. Uh, through Mia, uh, through Myanmar, previously known as Burma, there was um, in, the, in the southeast as well. There was a port project and a pipeline project, and they have separatist groups all, all along the entire route. And the U.S. is direct. You know, if we remember the Rohingya, that was where they were trying to build a port, and they had that huge uh, that huge conflict there. And 
in Thailand, they're building the high-speed rail, and it's going to go through Laos, and it's going to go into uh, China, southern China to Kuoming. And so now we, we have these protests here. That, that project's under construction right now. And it's interesting because the, the opposition leader here specifically said he would cancel that and defer to Hyperloop technology from the U.S., which doesn't even exist. So I think that helps answer the other question. Does the U.S. have a, an alternative? The answer is no, they don't have an alternative. They're, they're trying to delay. They're kicking and screaming as their empire just shrinks from the rest of the world. And what I think will happen is that these old interests that drive U.S. foreign and domestic policy, they are obviously um, under threat. They don't have a plan. Uh, their plan was, you know, like this huge pyramid scheme that's spanned the globe and they're getting pushed out. So if you if you have you have a pyramid scheme and you have fewer people uh, putting into it, it collapses. What will happen, hopefully, is that uh, America might go through a, a difficult transition. We might are already be seeing that. And then we'll see companies kind of pop up that have a more constructive worldview and are more interested in working together with nations instead of trying to stand above them all, like, like a traditional empire, like, like the U, cause the U.S. inherited the, what the British were doing after the world wars. And they never quite got, you know, they never really got the concept of working with other countries rather than trying to stand over them. So I, that's what I'm hoping happens. Who's to say that China isn't going to just take all their power and influence once they gather it? And, and, and do the exact same thing, become abusive. So I, like I always say, it has to be a balance. Every nation has to be thinking about a balance of power around the globe, multipolarism, um, keeping everything balanced so that, you know, no one single country has a huge advantage over the other one. And, and, and then that goes to like, you know, using technology to level the playing field. Um, and that, that's a whole nother topic to get into. But yeah, it's a, I think the U.S. is just trying to disrupt it. And I, I think they've spent huge sums of, of money and energy and effort and time into disrupting China's efforts that they forgot to spend any on, on actually creating a, a viable alternative. C countries in Southeast Asia would love to have a Chinese project, a Japanese project, and a U.S. project all going at the same time to, to keep a sense of balance. U.S. doesn't build anything anymore. It's just as simple as that, right? Right now, they don't. Yeah, yeah, and they used to. That 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 was one of the things that they that's they came with infrastructure to a lot of countries, and uh, that's not happening anymore. So that that game is completely changed. But I think you're right, uh, Brian. Uh, the the remnants, the 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 old habits die hard, uh, as they say, and um, and so they haven't really. I don't think they've adjusted uh, politically. Uh, maybe not even uh, uh, economically or business-wise, they haven't fully adjusted to the way things have have developed. And I think for that reason, there's going to be some uh, bumpy road ahead, unfortunately, uh, as these uh, two sides uh, try to coalesce um, uh, in the in the near future. The other thing is Iran, and uh, you you wrote a great article uh, for 21stCenturyWire.com here, uh, a dangerous provocation. Um, ahead for Iran. And what I liked about this particular uh, story was that uh, you, there's one quote I'm going to uh, pull here, uh, which you made. This is under Tony Cardellucci's uh, 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 name here, but creating the deal, you're talking about the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, creating the deal, sabotaging it and using it as a pretext 
to pursue military aggression against Iran was always the plan long before the JCPOA was ever signed. Now, that's a really important statement because that really flies in the face of conventional wisdom when people are looking at the Iran nuclear deal as as, uh, a great achievement of the Obama administration. And I might point out that uh, you know, they never fully implemented that deal, the Obama administration either. That's one of the complaints the uh, Iranians have. And then, of course, the Trump administration comes along after Netanyahu's famous PowerPoint presentation uh, of, of a supposed nuclear weapons program that he thought the Iranians had, that kabuki theater, as, as some might call it. Uh, then they withdrew from it and then lopped more sanctions on top with a maximum pressure campaign. And then you see the military standoffs coming. But I think your quote really is important because you're stepping back, aren't you, from looking at the the deal and the, the back and forth, the Brexit type minutia politics. And you're saying that the purpose of the Iran nuclear deal wasn't necessarily to uh, resolve a long-term geopolitical situation, but to potentially accelerate it. Uh, talk to that a little bit. Okay. And <clears throat> by the way, this wasn't me just kind of having a theory and, and putting it out there. I read, I, I, I take time every day to read through U.S. corporate funded policy think tanks. And this, this point came from the Brookings Institution, which is funded by the largest corporations in the U.S. and which also happen to be the largest corporations in the world. They're weapon manufacturers, oil companies, banks, you, you name it. And they fund this, this think tank to come up with policy papers. And one of them published in 2009 is called Which Path to Persia? And it's which path do we take to overthrow Iran? And they specifically mentioned this point among many others. Uh, and and every I, I suggest people go read it. I know it's a difficult read because it's Oh, I think it's over 200 pages long. It's a difficult academic English. My, like when I first started reading it way back when, I had to open a dictionary a few times, but just do it because everything that the US has been doing, whether it was under Bush or Obama or Trump, and now with Biden likely coming in, it's, it's in this paper. There's no secrets. It was all laid out. And this isn't even a secret document. This is how little they think of the public, they can just put it out there and do this. So with this deal, they literally said, we will offer them a deal and then we will find a reason to, to cite, to cancel the deal and make it look like they violated it. I'm pretty sure in that, that article, I have the, the, the direct quote from the report. And then when we proceed to uh, aggression, it'll look like we tried and it was the Iranians who were unreasonable because we offered this amazing deal to them and they turned it down it's a li- it literally says this this point is literally in that report and i was warning people as obama was trying to introduce this before they even signed it i said that this was what they were going to do and, and we saw and then we saw trump trash it and now we see these provocations right now right before trump is out of office to kind of tie biden's hands so to speak so that when he comes in he's like well i wanted to go back to the the peace deal, but all, all of these things happened and we just can't, it just can't happen. So, I mean, that's, that's how U.S. foreign policy works. And this is what I was trying to point out with no matter who you vote for, 
in Washington. There's one agenda that goes forward. This paper was written in 2009, and they're still reading from it today. The, it's their playbook. It represents their playbook. I don't know where the, these original ideas were first cooked up, but if you read through that paper, it's all in there. It's using Israel as like a provocateur and starting a war so that the U.S. could wade in later. You know, oh, our ally needs help. The, you know, the Iranians are picking on them. We need to go. Like they have every, every scenario in there. The, the color revolution is mentioned in there about how the, the opposition in Iran is unpopular. They don't stand any chance of ever taking the country over. We need to fund them. We need clandestine military support behind them. And we've seen all of that play out over the years. And, and I, I've been writing about it, trying to raise awareness. I'm surprised how many people have talked to me about this and, and admit they haven't re read the paper yet. R read it. It's, a, it's an eye-opener. No, it is. Yeah, that's that's an important uh, milestone document there for understanding. Uh, what, what's amazing uh, that, that I find, Brian, is that, uh, that there's a lot of people that think that all of these national security advisors and all of the, the foreign policy blob in Washington, that they've all got their own uh, individual genius takes on world, you know, geopolitics and international affairs, but uh, more often than not, they're just grifting off of think tanks, um, and they're they're literally regurgitating uh, papers that you know briefing papers that they're given, sent, or you know, and this is this is what the think tanks um, in Washington do. This is their purpose: is they uh, they generate ideas for politicians and for their staffers and things that they they themselves wouldn't be able to produce, or you know, they're basically guiding them in the direction of the the donors of these think tanks, the people that finance them. Most of them, of course, are large corporations uh, and foundations uh, as well. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 usually important. And uh, I think that was a great, uh, a great point, uh, which you highlighted on that. Yes, exactly. It's 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 that way. Exactly. The, the think tank will come up with it and then pass it off to Congress. And I, I think there's plenty of videos on YouTube. People can just look it up if they don't believe it. There's there's senators and people saying, I didn't read it before I signed it, where they just admit that they didn't, they didn't even read it. I think there's a clip of uh, Nancy Pelosi saying, let's just pass it and then we'll find out what's in it. You know, things like that. Like like I said, they, they're so nonchalant. It's been going on for so long and, and people kind of not paying attention or maybe they're just thinking, we'll try to vote them out next time. It, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter because just follow the money. Follow the money. Good, good advice. If you can't find out what's going on, just start with by following the money. Yes, and you'll, exactly. You'll learn a lot about what's going on. Well, look. Um, just before we go, I want to give you the floor for a couple of minutes. Just um, explain to people. Uh, we'll have links to your your blog, of course. Uh, and I know you've got a YouTube channel. You've got a few things going on. Just tell people how they can uh, follow and support your work. Okay. So I have landdestroyer.blogspot.com. That's my main blog. And then I have pretty much all the links on there. I also have Land Destroyer. That's my YouTube channel that I just started um, because I, I came out and I had to start doing videos. I'm kicked totally off of Twitter and Facebook for life. Uh, if I even try to open a, an account, even if I'm using like some kind of, uh, you know, any like a pen name or something, it just instantly gets deleted. And and if not, if uh, someone from Human Rights Watch or some someone here in Thailand sees it, 
they know someone, they report it, and it's gone the same day. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So my blog and my YouTube, I, I have Patreon now. I, I was kind of hesitant to, to do it, but I think that's the best way. You know, if people believe in your work enough to, to, to give you money, that kind of support, that helps a lot. And, that, and it, it builds a community also because you're interacting with these people on a day-to-day basis, which I, which I think is a great feature. And, um, you know, uh, before we end this, I just want to thank you and, and other alternative media out there that have been, you know, sharing my work for many years. When, when you're an, an anonymous blogger, um, these people like you become kind of like the, my face to the world when you're presenting this information to your audience. So I, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate all of my readers over the years and, and now viewers who help me in every every little way. Just sharing the work with other people is, is greatly appreciated. Yeah. And uh, one, uh, well, one cheeky question just before we go. I mean, I should have asked you this about half an hour ago, but um, do, do, you know, the, if, if the Biden administration comes into power as is scheduled, um, do you think we're going to see a rerun or they're going to want to try to pick up some of the loose ends that were left, let's say, during the Trump administration? I'm talking about Syria and some other places. Do you think we're going to see uh, a, a 2.0 of that strategy or is it is it going to ad- adapt to some of the Trump, uh, the stuff that Trump has set up on the board? Do you think they'll work with that or are they going to go back to the Obama strategy? Um, you know, what, what's interesting is I think a lot of Trump's problems in places like Syria was that the facts on the ground just are not working in America's favor. And when, you know, Biden comes in, they might think uh, we have a different way to sell a different strategy, maybe. But the fact of the, the matter is things on the ground in Syria still don't, don't work in America's favor. You've got Russia there. Like once Russia intervened in 2015, it was basically over for, for regime change. And now they're just spoiling. So that obviously is going to continue under Biden. What I'm, what I'm kind of worried about now is because of the, you know, the left right paradigm and how unpopular Trump was, people will see Biden, especially overseas where, where the U.S. is pushing regime change. Um, the idea of America backing an opposition now will be a little less distasteful than it was under Trump. So that, that's like, um, but that's, but that's not a fundamental thing that's changing. That's just superficial. And it might give, you know, a psychological edge to some of these opposition groups backed by the U.S. Uh, but I think overall, what, what guides what America is able to do in these countries is the facts on the ground. And that's, that's changing a- against their favor. And it gets worse for them every year. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I want to thank you for uh, for joining us. Uh, it's been you know an awesome conversation, of course. And uh, we've we posted some one of your most recent articles up at twenty uh, first centurywire dot com uh, under Brian Berletic, now no, formerly Tony Cartolucci. But Tony's archive is uh, is pretty substantial, and uh, it's going to remain there. And um, you know, so you you've built up a, a fantastic body of work. And so everything that you're doing, just building on top of that uh, and going forward. So I think that's what gives you a lot of credence. So hopefully now that you're uh, out as Brian, um, hopefully we can, uh, the, the, the social media gods uh, will somehow legally or somehow uh, be forced to allow you back 
onto the platforms. Honestly, my the last one that got deleted was under my real name, and they still deleted it. So I think right. I'm banned for life. <laughs> well, well. Anyway, we, maybe we'll have to run a petition or some sort of a okay. a social justice campaign for for Brian Berletic to be reinstated to Twitter. And there's a few of you, Daniel McAdams as well from Ron Paul Institute. He was banned uh, as well from Twitter, which was a, a massive loss. But anyway, uh, that's something for the future. But anyway, take care, uh, Brian. I want to say thank you very much and um, good luck with what you're doing. Uh, we'll have more conversations hopefully in the future uh, as well. But uh, And there'll be links to all of your work and how people can uh, see your work and support you on our show page at 21stCenturyWire.com. So thank you again. Okay, thank you, Patrick. Well, there he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That is Brian Berletic, uh, a.k.a. Tony Cardellucci. Uh, this was the inaugural episode of 21 Wire Live. And uh, thanks for joining us on YouTube, on Periscope, on Facebook Live as well. Uh, we'll actually see some of you tomorrow. Uh, well, you'll, you'll hear us uh, tomorrow on the Sunday Wire live at 21stCenturyWire.com. Same time, same channel, same place. Uh, thank you, everybody, who's been supporting us as well. Uh, we're running a winter fundraising drive right now. There's details of that up on the website. And I want to say thank you for your support and making this type of program uh, happen as well. So that's it. And uh, normally we'll probably broadcast this program uh, midweek, normally on Wednesday. Uh, but that's not to say we wouldn't do uh, other broadcasts, other live broadcasts at other times as well. Uh, so the show will be mostly live. There might be a few recorded episodes. Uh, but in, in a midweek, uh, usually around the evening time, uh, GMT midweek is when we're uh, aiming uh, to be broadcasting normally. But uh, again, thank you for joining us and uh, we'll see you soon. We'll see you tomorrow, actually, for the Sunday Wire radio program. Uh, so I'll check you out there. All the best.